life-giving holiness. Well, let's look then at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A few verses, and we take her from there. Finally then, brothers, he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is the will of God, he says. Your sanctification. It's always good to come and hear someone teach or preach on what the will of God is, since everybody always wants to know what the will of God is. Well, there you have it. There you have it. Your sanctification. Well, what does this mean then? You probably know that Wesleyan movements, Wesleyan theology, Wesleyan denominations, they've always been called holiness movements or holiness churches. There was a time back in the late 19th century, somebody started talking about holy rollers. I know you've heard that. Holy rollers. Uh, they started to use that term to describe uh, certain charismatic outbreaks in some of the holiness churches that did include, yes, literally, people rolling on the floor. Holy rollers. So this history of this idea of holiness, holiness churches, holiness movements, this goes back, of course, to the Wesleys themselves. Good old John and Charles. Yes, you know them. You've heard of them. Old Johnny and Charlie Wesley. The Wesley boys. There they are. Looking quite dapper. Looking oh so British and uh, ministerial and Anglican and uh, Oxfordian. They look like men of the 17. 20s in England. But while students at Oxford and ordained ministers in the Church of England, they believed that the church was lax, that it was apathetic, that it was rote, that it was in need of reform. So Charles started this group at Oxford that was dedicated to the study of Scripture, to real discipleship. John joined up and sort of became the natural leader. And as this group expanded and grew in number, more Oxford students started to come together. And they had this whole program they put together for these students. Some people started to scoff at them. And someone called them the Holy Club, which wasn't really meant to be uh, you know, a compliment to them. It was sort of derision, called them the Holy Club. But the name kind of came, you know, became a semi-official, you might say. This sort of wore it. And some people derided them as, quote, enthusiasts, which was also not complimentary at the time, to be an enthusiast. There was a negative pamphlet on this movement, which called them the Oxford Methodists, which was referring to the kind of strict methodical schedule and program for their increased holiness and discipleship that they had instituted. 
And this may have been the first time that this name was popularized, but as you well know, that that kind of funny name stuck. It's strange, really, when you look back at the history of the Christian denominations, how they got named. And, you know, it's the names, the names don't always have a whole lot of rich, fantastic meaning to them. Sometimes they're just stuff that, you know, they a lot of a lot of denominations did not never set out to form with their names. Even Luther never wanted Lutheranism per se. Well, let's back up then and talk about what the Bible means when it talks about holiness or sanctification. This is what this group was trying to do. In fact, this is what so many Christian groups, organizations, churches naturally, rightfully want to try to do. But what is it? How would we do it? How would we do it in such a way that it's uh, that it's according to what the Bible is referring to when it uses those words, as opposed to the uh, the parody that the world sees in talking about people being holy in the wrong ways, maybe holier than thou, as people say, or or sanctimonious as opposed to sanctified. Those aren't the same. We don't really mean the same things when we call somebody sanctimonious, do we? We don't want to be that second thing that's easily uh, that's easily made sport of, and sometimes you know sometimes deservedly. We want to be that first thing. What is it? Well, we start then with the word. You know I love to you know I love to give you a word study from time to time and give you some etymology and show you the beautiful Greek alphabet. So here are a few letters thereof. Hagios, as it says underneath. Hagios is the word. Now it kind of looks like just agios. Where's the H? Well, you see that little thing on top that looks like a backward comma? Not the straight line. The straight line is an accent mark that just tells you that the emphasis should be on the first syllable. Hagios. But that little backward uh, comma up there is called the rough breathing mark. It means you're supposed to breathe it like an H. If the comma were the other way, like a normal comma up on top of there, then you wouldn't have it, and the word would be agios. But it's hagios. That's your Greek lesson for the day. Well, this root of this word emphasizes the idea of otherness, or being apart, or being set aside like for a special purpose. So read throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and the Hebrew word Kodesh, which is their word for holy, would be used to talk about all sorts of things that were specially dedicated, like temple artifacts. The temple artifacts were not for common use. You didn't just go into the temple and take the various things in the temple and just use them for everyday life. They were set apart specially. Sort of the root of this word, the idea of this word, the being set apart. And here's the thing now, and I've sort of given you this before, to understand in English when we're reading our Bibles what, what we're looking at with these words. And it's often the case, I mean, this language we speak, it's, it's nice, it's versatile, it's got a nice long history to it. But part of its history is it's absorbed and sucked up all these different uh, terms that, that come from different traditions, like linguistic branches on the tree. So, sort of we've seen this with the words faith and believe. Believe and faith. They sound so different. 
they're the same word in Greek, just made into a verb form or made into a noun form. Uh, we see this in other words. I, I've given this to you. Probably get tired of hearing it. But here we go again with another one. Just interesting to know it and important for reading our Bibles in a more informed way. So, this is the word. This hagias is, is is in your Bible. All it's all over the New Testament, but in different forms. And sometimes grammatically, it's there's the verb form of it. Sometimes a noun form of it, and sometimes an adjective form of it. So, for example, every time you read, you're reading your Bible, and you see the adjective holy or sanctify. Whichever, how, whichever way the English translators wanted to do it, it's the same word. It is this word. Or, whenever you see the noun holiness or sanctification, the noun holiness or sanctification... That's the same word, hagias. This is a noun form. Or if you see it referring to people as saints or holy ones, that's the noun version. Now, what I showed you, hagias, that's the adjective. But, you know, you just tweak it a little and it becomes a noun. Or when you see the verb sanctify or to make holy, all of those, all of those are the same word, that word that I showed you. Hagias, just in different forms. That simplifies it a little bit because we have all these English words. The reason for that, by the way, partly is because when you take the word holy, um, when you take that word hagias and you go to Latin, the Latin word is sanctus. Of course, the Latin Bible was, was so uh, enormously central for centuries in Europe. Sanctus. So we get the word sanctify, sanctification. Saints from, you know, just borrowed from Latin into English. The word holy that we use is from Old English and Germanic, halig. Wycliffe was one of the first to uh, translate hagias using the English word holy in his old 1382 English Bible. So then, that's the word. That's the word being used. But what about, I mean, how does this play out? What is our theology of holiness. What does the Bible mean by sanctification? We've been helped by, a, by you know, generations of good Bible scholars and theologians who study it. But it really doesn't have to be complicated at all. So here is one way to see it on this slide as, as a big picture of what it means. The Christian's salvation, the big picture of salvation, involves these, if you will, these tenses. There's a past and there's a present and there's a future, as you see right here. The past is justification. This that has happened, the declaration of holiness or being righteous. You were declared righteous. Sort of like in the courtroom, in the courtroom of God, your standing was, I mean, your, your actual standing is guilt. Based on your performance, you are guilty. But... The gospel, this part of salvation, this thing which happened, this once-for-all event based on the sacrificial atoning death is a legal transaction of a sort, as Paul describes it. And that is justification. That's the past event. The declaration of holiness. Even though you ain't, not in your natural state, but you were declared. That's the past event. We could... Look then at the future 
The future hope that Christians have is for a final salvation, which is the culmination or the completion of sanctification. But you're not there yet. So in the meantime, there's the ongoing present tense of salvation, and that is sanctification. That's the process of practically, in your actual day-to-day life in this world, becoming more sanctified, becoming a holier person, becoming more of a saint with time. Let me show you another way it's, that you could put this. I did not, I did not create these slides. I always give you the disclaimer so that you don't think, uh, so that I'm not plagiarizing the beautiful slide work of other people. No, but I sure have a great eye, don't I, for finding the right slides that other people, all credit to them, whoever they might be, do. So here's another one that puts it in different terms. This puts it in these terms. Justification, being delivered from the penalty of sin. Because by being declared righteous, you were delivered from the penalty of sin. You were saved from that. You you were saved at that point from that. Sanctification, being delivered from the power of sin. The present power, the grip that it has, the clutches, uh, you know, the, the way that it dogs you and plagues you and is always tripping you up. The sanctification process is the, is the deliverance, the process of getting free of it in different increments and ways throughout the course of your life. And then the ultimate and final deliverance, being saved from the presence of it altogether. You don't even have to, you won't be in this body anymore. You don't have to deal with that anymore. That's the future. You see how that works. There's the past of it. You were justified. You were declared righteous. You were delivered from the penalty of sin. There's the glorious future of it that you look to, where you are delivered ultimately and finally from this body of death, where you no longer have to deal with all those sins that beset you and hound you and crouch at the door. But in the meantime, in the meantime, You're in this process, this ongoing thing of sanctification. That is the holiness process. Is it easy? I didn't say that. Don't misquote me. But it is the salvation of the day-to-day over the power of sin. That's what's being referred to. That's why it is called life-giving. Because if you can can over time be freed from Uh, the painful diseases of sin in the soul, this gives you life. This this, this gives you more and more of the kind of abundant life. Well, so as to the Wesleys then, two men who know a lot about their their beliefs are Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon, who are, or at least were, professors at Duke University. You probably know, some of you do. The Duke was a Methodist school long, long ago. It was called Trinity. And then uh, some wealthy benefactors in the Duke family, it took that name. Did you even know that there was a time that their mascot actually even was the Methodists? Just like Wake Forest's mascot was once the Baptists. So just picture a Final Four showdown between the two basketball powerhouses. Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be the mighty Methodists and the fighting Baptists going at it. 
And I can't explain why both of those decided to not. Well, they changed their mascots, but they all, but they also went so far away from the uh, from the denominational uh, origins that they had to pick blue devils and demon deacons. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm well familiar with the idea. I mean, at least a deacon is a servant. We know. I mean, this is a biblical concept. But a demon deacon? I don't need any demon servants serving me. Enough of that, though. So I read a book by these two gentlemen from Duke a long time ago. Believe it or not, speaking of Baptists and Methodists, I attended our fine state Baptist school, Oklahoma Baptist, out there in Shawnee, America. And I took a course, and the theology course there, we were assigned, one of our books was by the co-authors, Hauerwas and Willimon. We read that book. I, I was impressed with the two men. And I heard Willimon speak once years ago at some kind of event I was at. I have no idea what that was because my own personal history is something of a blur. But I know that happened. These guys write about the history and the development then of, of Wesley's interpretations of things, his theology. And so they point out some things that I think are important while we're thinking about this business of the holiness, uh, the interpretation of sanctification and how we see it, and the, the sort of legacy of, of this way of seeing it going back through Wesley. They, they remind us that Wesley had a robust view of human sin and depravity. So don't ever think that the holiness emphasis of Wesley was some notion that he didn't take, he didn't take all that seriously to fall and the sin nature of people. That was not where that came from. It wasn't based in some goofy idea that we are so much better than we truly are. So that would be a mistake. He had a deep and very realistic sense of the sin nature of people. They also remind us that Wesley did not confuse justification with sanctification. He believed in the central Reformation doctrine that we are dead in sin. Dead. Until Christ, by grace, makes us alive. So that we are justified by faith. He didn't get that backwards. And that's vital to understand, by the way, because sanctification or holiness has nothing to do with trying to become worthy of God's forgiveness or to earn God's favor. And that's the common and easy mistake that human beings naturally tend to want to make. But we don't want to look to this idea of holiness from this Wesleyan idea and get the notion wrongly that he was trying to say, God is holy. And you are a sinner, so you had better get to work if you hope to meet his standards. That, wasn't his, that was not his view. Harawas and Willimon describe Wesley's idea also of what has been called perfectionism. There's been a lot written about this, or what some people call entire sanctification. They kind of point out then that in the scripture, you know, you ever see the word perfect in a few places? In some translations, and you think, now what could that mean? Right? We're told in a few places to be perfect. Well, the English word perfect uh, can often does mean, when we use it, flawless and spotless. Absolutely without any blemish. If someone said to you, my friend so-and-so, he's morally perfect. You would assume that this is just an overstatement, hyperbole, or that they're just being uh, satirical, or it's some kind of 
inside joke, backhanded, and you wouldn't think that they really literally mean that, that about that person. Nor does the scripture. So the word perfect is from a Greek word, telos, which actually means completed, finished, a goal kind of achieved. And so therefore, there are sort of there is sort of more than one use of it. There's the ultimate final completion that you don't get in this life. Paul said, I do not consider myself having arrived, having laid hold of it. I have not achieved that. That does that is not achieved here. John was very clear in his God in his letter. Anyone who claims to be without sin at all? What is does he say? Follow that person and believe that person, for that person is truly so much holier than the rest of us, and we ought to know. He doesn't say something kind at all about that person who was in the early church running around saying those kind of things. Those in the early church who were teaching those things, John condemns that. He says, don't listen to those people. God, That is not of God. But, nevertheless, there is, though, this striving toward a kind of reaching a goal in this life. Wesley believed, then, that a person could be sanctified over the course of years so that all the various parts of their heart and mind and areas of life would have been surrendered and, and would have been renovated. Not that they don't still battle sins, but their battlefront has transformed to the point that that it's sort of like in, in a wartime situation, you can fight on different fronts. And the front that you're now fighting on is of a different nature. And so that it's sort of deeper in the mind, the thoughts. You're fighting at the level of the thoughts rather than the deeds. Any believer who might have once upon a time, say, been a violent, belligerent, mean-spirited, nasty person willing to fight other people, willing to be abusive to other people. That person, once converted, begins a process of sanctification in which, early on, he still feels like doing those things. He still feels that temptation. Like I told you about the guy on one of the trips I took overseas and the missionaries had converted a man. He, they had seen that it was a glorious because this guy was such a terrible rotten guy. He had been he had been an employee or been in with the with the local uh, organized crime ring. They they said he was mafia. They, that's the word they use. Uh, Russian mafia to be exact. And that this was in Kazakhstan. And so the guy was a terrible guy. He had he had I mean he had he's the kind of person who literally had beaten people. You know. To, or money and so on. Through his wife's influence and and Christians that were meeting in their home, this man became a Christian. But they said that only a few weeks afterward, he had gone out to try to convince others that he knew that they should change their ways. But he was trying to convince them with his fists. And when they disagreed and said, we don't believe in God, and we don't believe in all that stuff, he said, basic more or less, Say hello to my little friends. And he, he, he came at him with the, with the right hand of fellowship. Boom! You know, that was his way. And they had to tell him, no, 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 listen, my, my, my friend. That's not how we do it. Well, he was new. 
And but now here's so so Wesley's contention would be that that man, if you find him, let's say he lives 40 more years, and you find him four decades down the road after the process of sanctification, he will not be perfectly angelic and without the stain of sin in any way, shape, or form. But he won't be slugging guys anymore. Because he will his battlefront will have changed so dramatically that that will have been a distant memory. Will he still think a thought about a person that is not a Christian thought? Yes. Will he be tempted to say something he probably shouldn't say because someone got on his nerves? Yes. Or to put them in a bad light in his mind or to or to whisper something to somebody else about that person that's just sort of sort of gossipy and they, they really annoy him. Of course. But you see what a different battlefront that is than the battlefront of trying not to break the guy's jaw. Different. So because because and, and the renovation continues. That's how that goes. This is sort of like what many of the Puritan theologians had uh, said once upon a time. So, for example, the Puritan John Owen, who wrote quite a bit about this, he called sanctification, quote, the universal renovation of our nature by the Holy Spirit. The universal renovation of our nature. Because our nature is the twofold thing we've talked about. Our nature bears something good. The original image, the stamp, the image of God, it's there. But it's corrupted and it's marred and it's faded. So our nature also is all messed up from sin. What Owen was saying is that the sanctification process, the renovation, it begins to restore different elements of the the original image of God. He got this from Romans 8.29, saying that those that he predestined, remember that? Those he foreknew and he predestined, to what? To be conformed to what? The image of his son. The conformity back, really, to the image. The image that we've fallen from. So then, this is what the church teaches and practices. This is what it means, this business of sanctification. We are supposed to lead people in this way to encourage each other toward this goal. This is why what they are calling life-giving holiness is the primary principle of the work of the church in the world. The church has to often be reminded of it. Well, the late Dallas Willard, who I quote from time to time, you know, when, uh, when Wesley said once, famously, the first priority of my life is to be holy and the second priority or goal of my life is to be a scholar. That's a Wesley quote. Dallas Willard lived that kind of way. That was sort of his way. He was a brilliant scholar. He taught for decades at the University of Southern California. But he also was extremely interested in, this, in the church's role as a discipler, and as the process, those who lead people in this process of discipleship and sanctification, he wrote a book, one of his books, one of his many books was called The Renovation of the Heart. So there's that word again, even, that we hear, that we, that we hear from the, the Puritan theologians. And so he said this once that you see on the screen. That the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's what you become. So that it's sort of like in the teachings of Jesus, he doesn't just emphasize, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. But 
he takes it to a level deeper. In some ways, the laws, the legal scribes, the Pharisees had done, you know, overtime work in instructing all the people in the long list of things that they should do and the long list of things they should not do. And and what Jesus did somewhat differently was to get beneath the surface of what we do and to burrow into the character of people to say, who exactly are you? Because the transformation of the very character of the person won't that somewhat more naturally play itself out in in shaping what the person does and doesn't do. If the heart is not changed, then then the program of forcing people to do X and not do Y is probably doomed to fail. This is why moral training by way of, you know, sort of business-like seminars of do's and don'ts, which we sort of do in our companies, right? Come on in for our ethical training. Here's a bunch of stuff you should do. Here's a bunch of stuff you should not do. Okay, let's get out there and be moral. That doesn't really work because it doesn't get beneath the surface. Christian discipleship and sanctification, they don't just change up the lists of what people are trying to do and not do. They change the heart of people. Never forget that quote I probably mentioned before from the virulent uh, atheist who was talking about the plight of things going on in Africa. Missionaries in some parts of Africa where AIDS was really problematic. And he said, he said in an article I read years ago, this this man is a British man. And he, he's he's he's, uh, he's gay. He's an activist. He's very he does not like Christians at all. And he said, I have to say, I have to admit, having been on the ground in Africa and all these places. I actually applaud the fruit of what I see from the Christian missionaries because he said what they are doing is changing the hearts of the people and then the people are as a result living differently and that's turning out to be good for the society. What a concept. What a remarkable concept. That is what the church is supposed to be doing. So here's something else that Willard wrote. He said, spiritual transformation is not a passive process. He's always trying to tell the church, you've got to be active. You've got to do this. Quote, it is the task of Christ's people to produce righteous people spread throughout the population of earth. Righteous people must be made. They must be taught and trained. They are not born Righteous people routinely act in the character and power of Christ because of transformation of all dimensions of their personality, the heart, soul, mind, strength, and the social relations. End quote. That is the church's business as evangelism takes place. We we were not told, go ye therefore and get converts. It was go ye therefore and make or produce disciples. People who are learning, who are being trained in all the stuff I told you, you teach them. That is sanctification. And the result of it is the proliferation of saints in the world. And is that good for this world? That is medicine for this world. That's the he, that 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 you know all the brokenness and everyone wants to fix it all, fix it all. How can we fix it? 
send forth sanctified and and people being sanctified. That's the difference maker. And, And incidentally, this emphasis now goes naturally with the first two. Remember there was God-given revelation was the first one we did. And then there was, uh, because we were sort of, we put them in this order to coordinate with the sanctity of life, but we talked about um, love-driven justice that the church actively does in the world. Are those related to this? The life-giving holiness, the sanctification process? Well, you bet they are, because this whole process is dependent upon truth, or if you like, truths of God. Jesus prayed to the Father, and he said, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. If we, are, if we don't have a word, if we don't have the God-given revelation, then what's our training manual? and What is our standard to which we are conforming? What does that image even look like? So, sanctification is dependent on on the word of truth. And we can't be, secondarily, agents for righteousness in society, for justice to be done across the board in the greater world if we are tainted by its corruption. Because, because we live, how can we living just so unrighteously call forth for righteousness in our world? And and many of those who today will, will be out and you know, looking to be fighting for justice in the world, so many of them behave in abominable ways. And and so conducting themselves with the trademarks of all of the worst characteristics, you know, all the ugliest and nastiest kind of characteristics, this is going this is never going to succeed to be able to bring the world a prophetic word to try to change things for or more humaneness or fairness or justness in the world. Saints can do that. People who are so hopelessly beset by sins on every side, they can't fight that battle. They're losing their battle. Because they do not have the help of the Spirit. There's just no hope for this in in any area when we look at it that way. The church is the bride. And she goes forth into the world to make disciples. And the great hope of that is that people will be sanctified in the truth. Because that's sort of the connection with God. It is definitely relational. The book of Hebrews says um, that the one who sanctifies and the ones who are sanctified are of one. They are the same. By which, for which reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So let us be sanctified and experience claim to the world the kind of life-giving holiness.